Hello and welcome to Catholic Bites, a podcast for busy Catholics. This is Father Conrad, and I have back with me Father Blake Britton, who is a author about, uh, he writes about the Second Vatican Council uh, in his book, Reclaiming Vatican II. Father Blake, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. And uh, today we want to talk about a term that uh, is found in your book, but uh, maybe other people, if they've studied the Second Vatican Council, uh, have heard this term before. It's a French term, and the term is ressourcement. What is ressourcement? Why is this so important to our understanding of the Second Vatican Council? Yeah. Ressourcement is one of the foundational aspects of Vatican II. And there's this narrative that sometimes says Vatican II just came out of thin air, you know, or if you hear from traditionalism that it was a bunch of liberal bishops that got together that wanted to change the church. Mm -hmm. But nothing could be further from the truth. Vatican II represents nearly two centuries of theological development, and it all comes from this notion of ressourcement. So in the two centuries preceding the Second Vatican Council, there was a new field of academic study that arose called archaeology. And you started having British, German, French, American uh, archaeologists now going around the world and discovering amazing things. So during this time period, of course, we have Machu Picchu is found. We have the study of the Pyramid of Giza, the finding of King Tut's tomb, like all these amazing aspects of, of history that really fascinate us. But also there were large amounts of patristic and apostolic discoveries through the field of archaeology, as well as in the realm of biblicism or, or bibliology, the study of the Bible. We think of something like the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, that's discovered in the early 20th century. That revolutionized Bible study. So the combination of all these different forms of study now made the church uh, open, if you will, a time capsule about her earliest members, especially the apostolic and patristic age. And we have this revitalization, this rejuvenation of theology from scholasticism that is starting to take place in the 18 and 1900s. It begins with someone like Johann Adam Moller, who is one of the great theologians of the Tubingen School, of which Pope Emeritus the Benedict XVI is an alumni. Uh, but Johann Adam Moller is one of the first major players to integrate the writings of the church fathers that had been recently discovered. Tens of thousands of pages of documentation that was unknown or uncirculated before that point that is now accessible to the Catholic Church. He starts integrating the patristic notion into ecclesiology or the study of the church. That's picked up by John Henry Cardinal Newman who really spearheads ecclesiology, especially building upon St. Vincent of Luron and the discoveries of his commentaries on, on the church and the development of the church throughout history. And of course, John Henry Cardinal Newman pens his very famous work on the church and doctrine and development. And then finally, the, the very epitome of that movement is found in Father Matthias Sheban, and he will write on Mariology. We know that the study of the Blessed Virgin Mary during these two centuries blossoms because we rediscover the homilies, specifically of Germanus of Constantinople, Andrew of Crete, and John Damascene. These three great the theologians of, of the Blessed Mother, her role and life of the church. Now combine all those theological studies together, let them stew for over 200 years, and then you have this birthing of the Second Vatican Council, where we have amazing theologians coming to the fore, people like Yves Congar, Joseph Ratzinger, Carol Wojtyla, Hans-Jens von Balthasar, Amy de Lubac. Uh, they, they've been studying these texts and these theologies, these different movements from the Church Fathers and the Apostles uh, for decades, and now they're called to the Second Vatican Council in order to reintegrate the apostolic and patristic theology into the general populace of the church. And thus we have the document 
Lumen Gentium, Sacrosanctum Concilium, Dei Verbum, and Gaudium et Spes. The other documents are also, of course, sourced in uh, patristics and apostolic and biblical discoveries, but the four major constitutions are really shine through. To give an example, there are nearly 200 patristic references in just the four major documents alone, which is unbelievable to think about. In addition to this, of course, medieval references, references to the original councils um, of the church, Nicaea, Chalcedon, Ephesus. So the claim that Vatican II is not somehow rooted in tradition, uh, of course, is false. And not only that, but Vatican II is one of the most rooted and uh, and all-embracing ecumenical councils in church history. It really does take not just the medieval, scholastic, and Trentonian theologians, but also brings together the apostolic and patristic theologians into dialogue to, to really create a, a magnificent spectrum of Catholic theology, the likes of which you have not seen for quite some time. So that, that, that fascinates me. Well, one, I, I love the, like the, those, those scholars like de Lubach who, um, you read their work and it's clear they have read absolutely everything. And it's, right. it's wonderful, like obscure, you know, eighth century theologians you've never heard of. But right. that, that erudition, of course, is impressive and beautiful. And we want to draw on the past. But what is it particularly about the sources, about the church fathers that makes this discovery or this rediscovery of their work so valuable? Why, why do we look yeah. to them? Um, wonderful question. Wonderful question, Father. So, of course, the apostolic and patristic theologians, so we're talking about those, those church fathers, those theologians who were alive from the initial apostolic age, so after the ascension of Jesus, going up to about the ninth or 10th century, different people ended at different uh, components, different historians, but roughly the ninth or 10th century. These were theologians who were so close to the Christ event and who were raised within such a church that was so covered in the blood of martyrs, so intimately close to the saints, so powerfully connected to the original apostles, that their, their theological worldview was entrenched within Jesus Christ in a way that we're not now. That isn't to say, of course, the church isn't rooted in Christ. Absolutely, she continues to be united with Christ by a sacramental grace. But the insights which the early church fathers provide are bar none. They're invaluable to our understanding of the church. I'll give an example. Uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary. So for most Catholics, I would say, only because of the lack of patristic understanding, the Blessed Mother holds pride of place, which is important. She is the greatest among all saints. She's an object of devotion. You know, we love Our Lady. She helps guide us towards her son. But when you read the commentaries of John Damascene, Germanus Constantinople, Andrew of Crete, Maximus the Confessor, Origen, some of these other writers, you realize that the ancient church had a much, much deeper understanding and appreciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary than we have in our post-Protestant Reformation church. Uh, their understanding of Our Lady as not just a member of the church, but as the church. She's the incarnate uh, embodiment of Catholicism. And that's why the church from the earliest years is always referred to as a bride, even by St. Paul in his letters to the Ephesians chapter 5. We know that at the center of Catholicism is understood by the apostolic and patristic theologians the personality of the Blessed Virgin Mary, she is looked towards as the foundations of what will become the church. And thus, St. Luke takes the step of naming her at the Pentecost event because, as the church fathers teach us, the spirit cannot enter into the world without his spouse. And Mary is the spouse of the spirit. And so what's happening at Pentecost in light of the church father's writings is actually that the graces of the spirit are being now dispensed from the Immaculate of Mary into the heart of the apostles and the disciples of Jesus. What Mary possessed by merit of her immaculate conception and by merit of her redemption and grace in Jesus is now 
of being dispersed throughout the universal church through the gifts of the Spirit. That is unbelievably beautiful. <laughs> if we think about the significance now of Our Lady and her role in salvation history in light of this patristic theology, but that's only possible because the church fathers were so close to the event because Polycarp was a disciple of John the Evangelist who lived with the Blessed Virgin Mary. So obviously they have insights that we don't possess and we had lost touch with a lot of those kinds of insights. And that was one of the main things Vatican II hoped to reintegrate into the general knowledge of the church, which is mentioned explicitly in De Veriboom. Uh, we are encouraged as Catholics to read and study patristics by the Second Vatican Council in one of its documents on sacred tradition and sacred scripture. Um, and that's a place I think we still really lack um, overall appreciation development. And, and hopefully we're going to be able to, to push forward with that in the years to come. Yeah. And 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 when we understand, so so you mentioned in, in the last podcast we did, St. Vincent of Lorenz and, and this understanding of the churches as growing but traditional. And, and, and St. Vincent of Lorenz, you know, is very famous for Talking about the faith that was believed always and everywhere from all time, and 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 this, but but that could still develop, and and they used a very organic uh, understanding of developing like a, a plant that is springing up out of the ground. You know, the plant remains itself; it can't become something else. A, an apple tree doesn't become develop into an orange, but um, but it still has this interior growth. And and if we want a church to be a living, traditional church, uh, we have to be connected to our roots. And and it yes. seems like those church fathers really they represent for us the roots of our faith the depth of our faith and and being connected with them and staying close to them uh, and their insights and their understanding enable us to grow and flourish uh, in this modern world that we have by returning to the sources we actually have new strength uh to 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 grow as we're meant to grow Absolutely. And it's divinely providential. There's a wonderful book that I'm reading currently by Monsignor Shea from the University of Mary called From Christendom to the Apostolic Age. And he mentions there how we're now the fumes of Christendom have run out. We no longer live in a, an explicitly Christian culture, but in a post-Christian culture, a neo-pagan culture. And I believe it's providential that the Ressourcement movement developed the past several centuries and, of course, uh, crystallized within Vatican II because we are in need of that patristic zeal all over again. As you mentioned, we're in need to understand the very foundations of our identity as a church. That's why the hinge document of Vatican II is Lumen Gentium, which is the document on the church. Who are we as the mystical body of Christ? That identity has been assaulted and attacked for centuries now since the Protestant Reformation, but also in the post-Enlightenment era and the rise of secularism and militant atheism. We know that the identity of the church is constantly under attack, and we as Catholics have lost appreciation of the sublime dignity of what it means to be baptized, confirmed, and Eucharistized into the mystical body of Jesus. So the fact that we've rediscovered these patristic theologies that so adamantly uh, convey for us the magnificence and the brilliance of the Catholic ethos, and the fact that also Vatican II has sought to bring those back to the fore, uh, that really is providential for our own time and for modern new evangelization. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that's fantastic. Uh, that's a really lame response to a really beautiful, um, <laughs> a beautiful way of describing the church. Uh, just that's fantastic. But um, uh, I think it, it bears repeating the advice uh, we gave the last time uh, you were on this podcast, which is go read the sources, go read the sources. Now that's intimidating when it comes to the great patristic text. There's so much out there, but, you know, try reading the confessions of St. Augustine or try reading, uh, uh, Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, and 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 see see the the depth and the beauty that 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 brings us, and and then after that you can read Father Blake's book, Reclaiming Vatican II. So, Father Blake, thank you so much for joining us on Catholic Bites. 
Thank you. And, and I'm honored to be associated. Augustine Irenaeus of Lyon and then my book. Well, I'm, I'm very intimidated. Now. Don't let it go to your head. Don't worry. <laughs> so I, I don't know if it would be that deep and amazing as, as the confession. But, uh, <laughs> but thank you for putting me in such a gust company. <laughs> anytime. You're welcome back on the podcast. Anytime. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you like other great Catholic talks, you can find us at CatholicBitesPodcast.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We are a production of Catholic Cast Media. Thank you and God bless you.